0: Welcome everyone to History Forces Podcast. I'm your host Stephen and today I'm going to present you 16 interesting facts about the Maginot Line, one of the many symbols of the French military failure in World War II. The contrast between how much effort and resources were invested and the ease with which the Germans managed to simply flank this great defensive line of its time is simply too big to go unnoticed by studying these facts about the marginal line you can learn some important information about the mass this massive defensive system its role in the french strategy and the invested resources in it let's start with the historical background and early plans as we know in 1918 France emerged as one of the victors of the First World War, also known as the Great War or the war that will end all the wars. It didn't end anything, we all know. But the victory came at a high price for the French people. From a grand total of 7.9 million soldiers mobilized during the First World War, 1.4 million people lost their lives which represents 17.6% of the total mobilized soldiers or 10.5% of the active male population of France in 1918. The military losses were exacerbated by the economic disaster left behind by the German occupation of northern France and the huge debts accumulated by the French government by the end of the war. The question that many French leaders asked themselves was how to prevent a new disaster, how to prevent a new German success, a new German attack, a future threat to their nation, while the French politicians and military commanders have come up with different plans, different ideas. While the politicians focused on punishing and isolating Germany, both economically and military, through the Punitive Treaty of Versailles, which we know very well the Germans consider to be a diktat, the army focused on finding the necessary steps to prevent the Germans from repeating their great military successes of the First World War. The demographic situation generated by the First World War in France had a serious impact on the strategy adopted by the French High Command. At the beginning of the 1920s, there was a great rift in the French High Command about which strategy should be followed. While some proposed the offensive, the others supported the defensive idea. The group that supported the offensive strategy and even the idea of armored warfare for future conflicts considered that an early offensive over the Rhine River would be the best move to prevent Germany from rising again and becoming a threat for France's national security. The biggest supporter of the idea early during this time was Ferdinand Foch. Unfortunately for Foch, and the supporters of the offensive doctrine, the demographic crisis in France generated by World War I, and subsequently the economic crisis, helped the commanders who supported the defensive strategy, like Joffre and Philippe Pétain, the hero of Verdun, to win the strategy debate in the early 1920s. The result was that France was now gearing for a new war, even before Hitler's rise to power. Now, we'll talk about Andre Maginos' important role. As we know, plans for a new defensive line were laid long before Andre Maginos' term as Minister of War in 1929. As we know, before 1936, when the working on the fortification wasn't yet completed, the official name of the new defensive system was not the Maginot Line. You may wonder how this line got its name. Then that's where André Maginot, hero of World War I, enters the scene. As Minister of War this time, it had it was three times Minister of War. Between 1922 and 1924, 1929 to 1930, and from 1931 to 1932. During his term as Minister of War, André Maginot proved that he had good political skills by winning the support of both the left and the right-wing parties for his grand project for defending France by using very good combination of both nationalistic and employment arguments. The law regarding the financing of the project for the defensive line was approved by both the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate of the National Assembly of France with over 90% of the votes. An impressive achievement. Imagine, communists, socialists, nationalist wing parties all voted for Andre Maginot's plan and according to the project in the first phase 3 billion francs will be invested over 5 years between 1930 and 1935. Of course the total money invested for the Maginot line will later be extended to 5 billion francs before 1940. Unfortunately for the Minister of War, Andre Maginot, he will not live to see his dream completed. In 1932, the Minister of War will pass out because of typhoid fever. His works will become continued, and because the people remembered his dedication to the project, the new defensive line will be named in his honor. The official term of Maginot Line was adopted in august nineteen thirty five. It was the now fact number three. It was the most most ambitious military project of its time. The construction and designing of the fortification works were coordinated by a special commission created exclusively for this purpose, shortened Corf de d'Organisation de Région Fortifiée. I'm not a very good Frenchman, sorry. Between 1929 and 1936, with the financing obtained by André Maginot of 5 billion francs, a large number of civilian construction companies employed by the French government managed to build an impressive new defensive line. With the massive involvement of the entire French construction industry, the fortification works were almost completed by the end of 1935. Here are some relevant statistics. 12 million cubic meters of earthworks, One, 1. 1.5 million cubic meters of concrete, 100 kilometers of tunnels dug out, One, 150,000 tons of steel. And 450 kilometers of roads and railway systems. These are some of the important numbers of the Maginot Line. Further, 344 artillery guns of various calibers, from the 75 to 135 artillery guns to 81 millimeter mortars, were mounted in all the forts. 150 manned turrets along all the defensive line and 1,500 clutches, which is another defensive structure of the Maginot line. Just to put in context, 150,000 tons of steel, the the French could have built instead 5,300 Char B-1 heavy tanks, and they could have been ready for the mobile warfare strategy proposed by Charles de Gaulle in 1939. It is important to note that the above mentioned numbers are not definitive, because the French worked on extending the marginal line even after 1935, both along the Italian and up to the border with France, uh, with uh, Belgium, I mean. It stopped right before the border with Belgium, because then they were still in a treaty, friendship treaty. Now, fact number four. The costs were impressive. The overall cost of the Maginot line when completed reached 5 billion francs, which in today's money would be 9 billion dollars. To put the number in context, the entire military budget of France in 1937 was 12.8 billion francs, so it's nearly half of the budget for a year of the military budget of France. The exact costs for building a single ouvrage, or fort, the name official name of the French forts were ouvrage, is not exactly known because the various sources present different numbers. It is estimated that for the largest forts the costs were between 100 and 130 million francs. Of course, there are also some notable exceptions the Hackenberg and Hochwald forts, where the costs were 172 and respectively 150 million francs each. The French didn't work with standards, they tried to adapt each fort according to the necessities of the and the local terrain, so that's why the costs were not always fixed. The petit ouvrage, or infantry forts, or lighter forts of the Maginot line, usually costed between uh, 6 and 24 uh, 24 million francs. Overall, the costs for building the fortifications now only in the Alpine mountains, where those fortifications stopped Mussolini's invasion, represented 50% of the other costs for the fortifications from other sectors of the line that faced the Germans. When analyzing the overall distribution of the money invested in the Maginot line, only between 5 to 10% of the total funds were allocated to the Alpine defenses, which had the important role of stopping Benito Mussolini's offensive in 1940. The defensive depth doctrine, fact number 5. The Maginot Line had a total width of approximately 20 to 25 kilometers depending on the sector of the front. From the border to the rear, the defensive line consisted of border post lines, outposts, a principal line of defen- of resistance, infantry casemates, petit ouvrage, gross ouvrage, These are the forts, the main forts. Observation points, telephone networks, infantry reserves, shelters, heavy rail artillery, flood zones on multiple sectors and multiple supply and ammunition depots for supporting all this infrastructure. Now I will go and talk about... A little about the petit ouvrage and the gros ouvrage and the Elf infantry casemates, which were the main points of resistance of the Magino line. The petit ouvrage, in general, they consisted of several infantry bunkers that were connected with the help of a network of tunnels. Usually, the weapons used were lighter than the ones used in the gros ouvrage. The Petit Ouvraj were armed with 81mm mortars and machine guns and the garrison size was in most of the situations between 100 and 200 soldiers. The gros Ouvraj, the piece of resistance of the entire fort- fortification system, they were the largest fortresses. They were primarily equipped with the best artillery guns of 75-135 Millimeter guns and also 81 millimeter mortars. Like the Petit ouvrage, they were connected by a complex system of tunnels. The bunkers of the Gros Raj were positioned strategically in case one bunker, they usually consist of six to eight independent structures, independ- infant- either infantry or anti-tank shelters. These were positioned strategically so in case one of the shelter fall into the enemy hands, the others were capable to respond with direct fire on it and uh, to be able to mount a rapid counterattack against the enemy positions to recover that shelter quickly. The average size of the garrisons for a grow of Raj was between 500 to 1000 soldiers. So, a bigger garrison, as you can observe. As a side note, both uh, the petit Ouvrage and the gros Ouvrage were designed and equipped by the French army engineers to be almost self-sufficient. All the fortifications were supported by a vast electric and telephone system to ensure the best communication between the defenders. French engineers also added barracks, ammunition stores Media other facilities to ensure that the defending garrisons were not run out of supplies or ammunition in the long term. In total, there were one hundred and forty-two ouvrages along the entire Maginot line system. Now the infantry casemates, usually they consisted of two fortified concrete structures with two floors, each manned by twenty to thirty soldiers each. They were equipped with twin machine guns and anti-tank artillery guns, of of 37 to 47 millimeters. Generally, the infantry casemates also had one to two, either anti-infantry or anti-tank turrets. Like the ouvrage, they were also equipped with stores and depots to be self-reliant, on the long term. Now, fact number six. A bit about the attitude of the French towards the new Maginot line. Though praised by British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, not everyone from the French command was impressed by the Maginot line. Remember the supporters of the French mobile warfare doctrine? They didn't give up. In 1934, Charles de Gaulle wrote his famous book called Towards a Professional Army, in which he proposes and supports the expansion of the armored forces and their use in modern warfare. Unfortunately for France, de Gaulle was outmaneuvered by his superiors, especially Philippe Petain, the hero of Verdun and future traitor of France who supported the supremacy of the defensive strategy and the Maginot line above anything else. So, as you can see, De Gaulle's ideas were rejected by the French High Command, who supported absolute military doctrines and ideas. De Gaulle's only ally at this time was only Paul Renault, but it wasn't enough for the victory of the mobile warfare supporters. And, as a side note, though in 1940 France had an armoured forces of 3,000 tanks, as de Gaulle had proposed, they were dispersed along the entire front, making them inefficient against the new blitzkrieg tactic of the Wehrmacht. At the same time, the French commanders decided to use the tanks as support for infantry divisions. An obsolete doctrine not as separate divisions for large-scale offensive maneuvers, like the Gaul desired to do. Ironically, the Germans were the ones who put the Gaul's ideas into practice. Now, fact number seven, source of inspiration for other countries. Being a great military and technological achievement of its time, Benefiting from the support of the military propaganda, media under military powers of the time attempted to copy the Maginot Line and use their lines as part of their national strategy for for defense. This phenomenon is known today as the Concrete Mania. Nation after nation joined a grand arms race of securing their borders with steel and concrete bunkers. Here are a few examples. Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Greece, and not the last of the list, Germany. Belgium. Following the model of their French allies, the Belgians started to improve their existing forts in the early 1930s while also building new ones while fo- focusing their efforts on the forts along Liege and the Belgian restored the old forts from Antwerp and Namur and also built new bunkers along the strategically important Albert Canal. Czechoslovakia. Now, with the rise of Nazism in Germany, the Czechoslovakians started to, f- to fortify their borders in 1935. The Ring of Fortification will become known as uh, the Benesh Line, after the name of the President Edward Benesh. The French aided the Czechoslovakian defensive by sending General Charbel Agu, President of Korf, the military commission which supervised the construction of the Magino Line, as military advisor to Czechoslovakia. At the same time, a Czech military mission studied the fortifications of the marginal line in 1934. Greece, now. Following the French example, the Greeks began in 1936 the construction of a 155-kilometer defensive line, which re- remained known in history as the Metaxas Line. The purpose of the defense system was to protect Greece in the event of a Bulgarian invasion. Like the Maginot Line, the Metaxas Line also consisted of forts, bunkers, machine guns, and a complex underground network. Ironically, the Metaxas Line would have the same fate as the Maginot Line, flanked by the Germans during the invasion of Greece in 1941. Germany, not the last of the list, as a response to the development of the Maginot Line, the Germans began the construction of the West Wall, also known as the Siegfried Line, a defensive line that consisted of 18,000 bunkers and various anti-tank traps. It wasn't as complex as the Maginot Line, being primarily built to be an obstacle in the way of a potential French offensive so it could stroll down the French while the panzers could arrive and deal the decisive strike against them, but as you know, the French attack never happened. Fact number eight, it did stop Mussolini's invasion. When the German campaign against France was nearly over and the result was very clear, Benito Mussolini decided to declare war against France and officially joined the Axis forces. Il Duce thought that the Italian army could quickly overrun the French forces, fending the fortifications from the Alps, and conquer as much land as possible from southern France. Though the main Maginot line failed to stop Hitler's invasion of France, its counterpart from the French Italian border had done a very good job. Nicknamed the Little Maginot Line of the Alps, the four French divisions under the command of General Rene Olry, who manned the fortifications from the Italian French border, had stopped a massive Italian invasion force of 32 divisions. From the initial force of 50,000 soldiers, the Italian invasion force lost 5,500 troops, most of them were killed, approximately 1,231, while the French defenders lost only 40 troops, 40. And the Italian army Manage in this campaign to capture only a small coastal town called Menton, so not the great military success Benito Mussolini hoped to achieve, either. Fact number 9. The fate of the Maginot Line during the occupation, what was its fate? During the German occupation of France the Nazis converted approximately 10 of the Gros of Raj, the large fortresses, remember, from the Magino Line into bomb-proof weapons factories or ammunition depots. At the same time, the heavy weapons, electrical equipment and other parts from the Magino Line were removed and later used for the construction of Hitler's famous Atlantic Wall a defensive system built to stop future naval invasions from the Western Allies. With the success of the Allied campaigns in June and August 1944, followed by the quick collapse of the Wehrmacht in France, portions of the Maginot Line were quickly refitted by the Wehrmacht in an attempt to slow the American and British advance towards the German border. In the Alpine sector of the front, in August 1944, the German units attempted to organize a strong resistance by using the Ouvrage from this sector against the Allies, but they failed to slow them down. Patton's Third Army's initial advance was slowed down by the marginal line fortifications which were defended by the Germans, approximately 10 Sherman tanks were destroyed in an attempt to destroy them initially. But quickly the Americans realized that attempting to destroy these fortifications with tanks was not a great idea. So they had to find creative ways to breach these forts. On another, another sector, the American 7th Army in December 1944 have a very difficult job when attempting to defeat the German defenders from the forts of the Simserhok. Freudenburg and Schieshek near uh, French region of Bitche not a very good French as I told you not good I need to exercise further the battles around the ouvrage from the for- former Maginot line 1944 helped the American army to gain experience though in the fighting against heavy fortifications overall the Maginot line failed to help the Germans defenders to slow the Allied advance, first because the Allies were attacking the line from the rear side, which was the vulnerable area of the Maginot line and was less fortified, and the second reason is that the Wehrmacht lacked the required manpower to man all these fortifications. Now, fact number 10. It was repaired and garrisoned again by the French army after the end of World War II. By the end of World War II, as a result of the German occupation and extensive fighting, most of the Maginot Line was heavily damaged. A team of 200 200 experts under the leadership of General Fortin evaluated the damage in 1945. According to Fortin's experts, only one 81 mm turret was still operational. While only half of the total number of manual turrets could still be operated. At the same time, nearly half of the total number of ouvrages suffered extensive damage and become unserviceable and could not be used very soon for combat. Although the Blitzkrieg and the 1944 battles had done significant damage, this didn't stop the French, from reoccupying and repairing the Maginot Line. With the escalation of the Cold War and the threat of a massive invasion of the Western world by the Soviet Union, the French High Command took again steps to restore and modernize the Maginot Line. Some of the Maginot Line bunkers were later converted to NATO command centers. When France joined the Nuclear Power Club in 1960s, the marginal line quickly became absolute. It was anachronic at the stage, and investing money into modernizing it was abandoned. More important, the French, through a decree passed in October 1960, declared that the marginal line will no longer play. A significant role in the defense of the country. Fact number 11 and this is something that it needs to be thinked. It needs to be... it's about analyzing. Is it a total failure? It depends of course on the perspective. Was the marginal line a total failure? This is the question of this fact. The answer is not definitive like any other answers to important questions in history, and it depends very much on the perspective. If we look at the final result, the quick collapse of the French forces in 1940, it's easy to say, the Maginot Line failed to achieve its main objective, to save France. If we analyze though the tactical point of view, find that the Maginot Line was not completely useless it was not a complete failure let's look at the below objectives of the maginot line according to various historical sources and analyzes analysis over time one prevent any major german surprise attack to protect the vital regions of alsace and lorraine and their industry to buy time so the french army could mobilize in time. To force the Wehrmacht to attack through different routes, Belgium or Switzerland, to be used as a base for future large-scale counter-offensives, to save the lives of the French soldiers, to prevent the heavy fighting on the French soil. If we look at the objectives previously mentioned by me, some of them were did achieved by the Line. It did prevented any major surprise attack, forced the Germans to take the famous detour to Belgium, as the French hoped initially. It did save a lot of manpower. Many of the petit and gros ouvrages, I mean large the small and large fortresses of France, who were attacked by the Germans, did inflict high casualties on them, while the defenders. Suffered minimal losses. Alsace and Lorraine, which were important industrial regions for the French economy, were saved from direct destruction by the Maginot Line. By studying the above tactical and strategic results, we can conclude that the Maginot Line was not totally responsible for the fall of France. It wasn't only the Maginot Line the one who failed to defend France. Another aspect worth analyzing is how much of the total defeat of France in 1940 is due to the marginal line, how much is the fault of the French army, which had an obsolete military doctrine at the time, like using tanks as support for infantry divisions. The fall of France cannot be attributed exclusively to the marginal line or the French army, it's rather the result of the combination of both elements. Separately they cannot explain the surprising downfall of France. If we study from this perspective, of course, the marginal line looks more like the scapegoat for the disaster of the French army overall in 1940. Fact number 12. It lacked proper anti-aircraft artillery. For a defensive line, which was meant to stop the German blitzkrieg, the marginal line did have a weak spot. Though it had the best artillery France could offer, the few anti-aircraft positions of the Maginot Line could do little to stop the dive-bombing attacks of the German Stukas. Worst, the Germans knew about this flaw and the fighter pilots continued to dive-bomb even after releasing their bombs so the French anti-aircraft crews could offer little resistance to nothing. During the war, the French forces on the Maginot Line improvised their own anti-air defenses with the available artillery from the fortification and even managed to uh, shut down a few Luftwaffe planes, but you know, this doesn't contribute to the overall result with nothing. The overall weakness of the marginal line against the Luftwaffe was recognized by some politicians of the time, including the British foreign secretary, Sir John Simon who stated that, and I quote, Against military aircraft, the extensive fortification of the French Frontier, the Maginot Line, cannot avail. Civilian population must be organized and drilled in preparation for air bombardment and gas attack. Fact number 13. It was not a secret for the Wehrmacht. The existence of the Maginot Line was not meant to be kept secret. The French government even attempted to exaggerate the real strength of the fortifications for propaganda purposes, and a move that didn't achieve the desired effect. The German forces, especially their intelligence services, were one step ahead of the French. The exact strength of the Maginot Line was presented in various military reports of the Wehrmacht, in 1935 and 1936. These reports not only contained the exact locations of the bunkers and forts, but also correctly identified the artillery type used in those forts and bunkers. And this leads straight to fact number 14. German workers participated in the construction of the Maginot Line. Yes, you heard well. Not exactly known how the Germans managed to obtain so many details about the strength of the Maginot Line, but most probably spying Pierre played here a crucial role, and the best source for the spies here were the workers on the men who worked the Maginot Line on building the bunkers. Due to the large scale of the project and the required resources, the French were forced to use foreign laborers, some of them were even Germans. Surprise! The Germans could have used the knowledge of the foreign workers who directly participated in the project. Needless to say, not a very smart move from the French. Fact number fifteen: No gros ouvrage or large forts were captured by the Wehrmacht. With the British army evacuated at Dunkirk and the French army in full retreat, the Wehrmacht started the attack from the rear of the Maginot Line in early June 1940. Most of the attacks from the rears or and the flanks of the Maginot Line were focused against the Saar and the Metz sectors. The Wehrmacht managed to capture several petit ouvrages with the help of explosive charges 88mm artillery guns and Luftwaffe bombings. Though successful against the Petit Ouvrage, the lighter defended French ports here, if you don't remember exactly what were the Petit Ouvrage, the Wehrmacht failed to conquer any gross Ouvrage, the large fortresses. Despite using the best artillery available and even the big Bertha 420 siege gun, Luftwaffe bombings, and explosive charges. The Wehrmacht failed. While defiant, a Groh of Raj were also capable to fighting back the German attackers. On 15, June 15, the artillery from Fermont Ouvrage devastated a German supply convoy. Another great example is represented by the Valiant resistance organized by the French garrison of Ouvrage Schonenburg. Between September 1939 and June 1940, the Ouvrage Schonenburg was attacked with 3,000 shells and 160 bombs. The damage done was minimal, so the defenders were not affected too much. It is considered the most bombarded fortress from the entire Maginot line. During the same period, the defenders repulsed any enemy forces by firing 7,000 artillery shells. When the armistice was signed on June 23, 1940, French commanders of the gros Ouvrage from the Maginot line were amongst the last who accepted the capitulation, and even then they protested, the surrender terms. And the last fact, and not the least important, it should have been mentioned earlier. The Maginot Line was part of a great trap, which, unfortunately for the French, failed. With the Maginot Line completed, the French thought that the only option left for the Germans was to bypass it through Belgium, and thus repeat the Schlieffen Plan of First World War. When the Germans attack against Belgium will commence, the French army will rush to link with the Belgians and by doing so they will prevent the war from reaching the French soil. The Wehrmacht and especially one great commander, Erich von Manstein, didn't want to repeat the 1914 Schlieffenplan scenario. Von Manstein Mastermind behind the fall of France came with a bold and ingenious strategy. You may wonder what was Manstein's plan. While a significant German force will indeed attack through Belgium and try to lure as many French forces into Belgium, the real offensive with the majority of the Panzer divisions will start further south, in the Ardennes Forest. Remember, the Ardennes forest was considered impossible to be crossed, so the French army didn't concentrate any, in the area any serious tank defenses. When the French realized this great mistake, it was too late. The approximately 1,200 panzers under the command of General Heinz Guderian already got past the Ardennes and reached the English Channel in less than five days after the Battle of France officially started, effectively cutting the French armies from Belgium from the other forces, and forcing France, after a few weeks, to capitulate. Hope you have enjoyed this podcast and found it informational for and education. If yes, please subscribe for more. Have a very good day.